Welcome to the Slightly Evil podcast, where in 30 minutes, we aim to arm you with new, non-obvious, fun and effective ways to improve your work culture. We also discuss hot topics in the DNI space and contrarian points of view. I'm your host, Kedar Ayer. Today, our guest is Dr. Rebecca Heiss, who has a PhD in stress physiology and a background in education. In addition, she's an author and well-known speaker on topics such as blind spots and what the brain science teaches us about gender differences in leadership and communication. In our conversation today, we talk about a new legislation passed in California that mandates public companies to have at least one woman on their board of directors. We discuss the impact this could have and also what we know about legislating affirmative action. Lastly, Dr. Heiss shares a view on feminism and what we can do to be more mindful of gender differences while ensuring that everyone has equal opportunity and access. We have a lot to talk about in this episode with Dr. Rebecca Heiss. So let's start at the top. For those who don't know anything about this new legislation, can you tell us a little bit about what the Senate Bill 826 is that got recently uh, into legislation in California? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a lot to it, but the the basic outline is that in the 2019 calendar year, it's going to require that any publicly held corporation located in California has to have a minimum of one female to sit on the board of directors. Um, And then there's, of course, increasing minimums in the calendar year of 2020 and 2021 so that any board has to have a certain percentage of female uh, directors sitting on the board in those calendar years. Now, it sounds like many you know, activist groups and many feminists are talking about having representation. So it sounds like a very well-intentioned move by the lawmakers in California. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I 100% agree that the move is well-intentioned. And uh, in fact, in the bill, they cite numerous independent studies that demonstrate how publicly held companies actually do perform better um, with females sitting on the board. Now, that said, um, while the legislation is meant to be proactive in closing the, gen- the gender gap, I think anytime you legislate diversity requirements, you risk unintentionally undermining the, v- undermining the very population that you're hoping to serve. So in this case, right, access doesn't necessarily imply acceptance. Having a seat at the table doesn't really mean that we're having a voice. So I think too often these positions become token demonstrations of diversity without the requisite inclusion to render the positions sort of an effective step towards real equality. So what do you mean by someone is not accepted when, you know, when we're talking about, you know, a board seat? Because, you know, a board seat is not something that is casually just given to somebody because they, you know, represent a certain gender or race or ethnicity. I would imagine there's a lot of wetting that goes into quality of experience and, you know, the, 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 the thought process and things that they add to the value of the, the, the corporation that they're going to be sitting on the board of. Sure. I mean, I mean, you hope that, right? But when it's legislated, sometimes that means that um, boards are, are a little bit desperate in grabbing figureheads and not looking necessarily at the merit of the person. Um, this certainly happened, you know, if you, if you look at the legislation that was passed in other countries that were similar to this, uh, they were passing legislation in Norway about 10 years ago about this and uh, and mandatory gender quota of 40% for the boards um, of, that had to be female. 
And what ended up happening is the really highly qualified women became thinly stretched. You know, they were serving on so many boards that the boards sort of uh, started grabbing women, not necessarily for their merit, but for their gender. And at that point, you're really hurting. You're not serving the board. You're not serving the company. And you're certainly not serving equality in um, finding really highly qualified female candidates. So what you're saying sounds like, in Norway at least, the, the number of women that now were on boards perhaps didn't increase, but the number of board seats that each woman held increased. That's correct, yes. And that's very interesting because um, I'm curious to know, that's not very difficult to kind of, you know, uh, put two and two together. So what would be some of the, you know... Uh, let's say the data-driven driven reasons why someone would have gone in the first place to say, hey, there is a lack of representation of women in the boards because of these reasons. And in order to fix these, this is the best way forward. So I'm trying to understand what would be those reasons why someone would get this in place that would logically and say that, hey, you know, the outcome should be that now we're going to see more women. For example, sure. you know, typically uh, you might say, hey, you know, uh, if you have to have someone in a certain position in, in an organization or at some grade level, you might say that only internal women should be considered. So that means then you're, let's say, helping women from inside the organization move up to that position, which means a new person is now going to assume that position. So that's sort of one way to look at it. So I'm just trying to understand, you know, how did this become the legislation? Is there some data-driven way to kind of look at this that we're missing out on? Uh, sure. I mean, and you can look at this from a number of different, of different perspectives, right? There's studies that have shown that in order to close the gender gap at the top, it's going to take 50 years if we don't take some action. So again, I, I do think that it's admirable that California is looking at these statistics and saying, hey, you know, we have to do something about it. Um, I just think that their conclusion in in how in how they're approaching it is misinformed because I mean listen it's it's a no brainer that the economy of California is going to improve if women are selected on the merits on their merits to serve in these positions right and you can look at across you know <laughs> across studies you can look at stock performance or debt or sustainability or earnings per share or return on equity it it doesn't matter what particular performance indicator you're looking at. The research shows over and over again that having a woman on the board of directors is a smart business maneuver. But what we're seeing in countries that have adopted something similar to this before is that there's not a trickle-down effect. Even if you are grabbing women that are high performers and, and are serving on these boards for merit, you're not necessarily seeing that trickle-down into the numbers of women that are, are managing in the company, for example. Mm. So it seems to be sort of a, a token legislation, a seat that's not providing much as much power as we might hope. So the rate at which women typically tend to become board members would still remain the same. It would it's not going to radically increase that rate. I mean, not to my understanding. And 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 if it does, then I think there's actually a problem there as well because what that might mean is that we're putting women on the seats as placeholders um, rather than seeking out from for you know from areas that we haven't looked before perhaps, you know, looking looking for women outside of traditional places that businesses look. So the education fields, the nonprofit fields, there are a lot of highly qualified women out there. And I think we haven't taken the time to really dive in and find those um, perspectives. We, we use sort of the simple formulas that have always worked because we've never had to seek outside perspective. 
So for a company that's going to, let's say, as you put it, not pick someone on merit, but simply pick someone because they need to you know, comply with a certain law, what's the incentive for the company to do that? Because you know, it, it's quite expensive to have someone on a board that is not really contributing. Sure. I mean, I think you just said it right there, right? I think the board will be highly served to to seek out high merit, um, high performing women. Now, the problem with this legislation is that the devil is in the details, right? It doesn't legislate that you have to give the same power to those women. It doesn't legislate that you have to give the same voice to those women. It doesn't legislate that you have to actually listen to those women as they speak. And when we look at some of the blind spots that boards typically have, even when they say that they're highly diverse and they have a diversity of race and backgrounds and class and and gender um, and ages, the power lies where the power lies. And it's much more difficult to enforce or legislate um, having a voice, you know, being heard, being listened to, having your ideas valued than it is to say a female has to be on one of those seats. Does that mean this person may not have the same voting rights as someone else on the board? I mean, there's nothing in the legislation that I've seen. I I actually probably need to take a closer look at that. But um, my quick read of the legislation was that, no, there's nothing that that is enforceable anyway to say um, that this person has to have equal voting rights or, you know, be heard. And that's, again, how do you legislate whether or not your ideas are heard? Um, that's, That's really tricky. And is there any penalty to pay if uh, that seat remains unfilled? There's a required fine. If these publicly traded companies, right, are defaulting on this and willing to pay the fine, first of all, I I don't think very many will. And the reason for that is because of the public scrutiny that would result. We're living in a world of social media and um, really unprecedented access to public information. So no company is going to be willing to do the sort of damage control that it would be necessary to Uh, to have if they defaulted on this bill. But that said, this puts even more pressure on companies that might not see the reasoning behind the legislation um, to put figureheads on their boards and sort of limit the power to these women. So enforcing, again, enforcing or legislating inclusion is much harder than enforcing a five for obvious neglect. It's really those subtle issues that are more difficult, um, but the more important ones to to address. Interesting. um, You talk about these women not having the power um, and the voice, because if you look at the roots of feminism, the whole reason why it is in, you know, uh, still in existence is because of the so-called power imbalance that is meant to be fixed. But this doesn't seem to be addressing that very problem. And in, in fact, it seems like it's widening the gap. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I often get asked about feminism and to me, I actually really struggle with the concept because if you stick to sort of the dictionary definition of feminism, it's the advocacy of women's rights and, but it's on the basis of equality in the sexes. And while I'm certainly an advocate for women's rights, I don't think that there's equality in the sexes. There's nothing equal about us, right? We're fundamentally different. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have equal access and equal opportunities, but you know, consider that the definition of, of feminism doesn't have sort of an equal and opposite in masculinism. I mean, when you hear masculinism, that's the advocacy of the rights of men. And it's by definition, anti-feminism. Now, I think that's kind of ridiculous, right? That these concepts are juxtaposed. If you're masculinism, you're anti-feminism. If you're feminism, you're anti-masculine. I think it's 
a little bit ridiculous, right? This is where a lot of people get held up. There's so much black and white. I think we really need to <laughs> dive into that gray area um, instead of getting caught up in, well, this is just to benefit females. No, this is just to benefit males. You know, we, we have to look at how we benefit the organization overall. And that's where all of these data-driven examples of how fem- having a female perspective, having some diversity to bring new perspectives, to uh, not buy into that, that, single, that single view is going to really benefit companies. And who exactly do you reckon would dive into these things? And because it seems like the legislatures uh, or the sort of the legislators are just trying to push a bill to maybe please their constituency or to score some, you know, points um, in public opinion. But no one's really looking at, you know, the, the details of how it should help an organization, you know, be more productive, be more innovative, be more future proof, let's say. And who should be in an organization typically looking, be looking at this stuff? <laughs> well, you'd hope the board, right? You'd hope the CEO and the board. Um, unfortunately, like every blind spot, it's difficult to see. It's difficult to know what you don't know. And so you get a lot of confirmation bias where everybody agrees to a single perspective, a single idea, because everybody around the table has that same life experience. You know, and I don't think it's government's place to necessarily be legislating, but if they're going to legislate to increase diversity, if that's their goal, perhaps the place they need to start is looking at something that's going to be more helpful. I mean, we talk a lot about childcare in this country, and maybe the legislation needs to look at how to make women, since women are the primary caregivers still, right? How can we reduce the cost of childcare so that women aren't having to make the choice of paying the price in their career advancement if they choose to stay home with their child. What can the legislation do to ease the requirements around maternal or paternal leave? You know, maybe we need to give paternal leave. Little things like this that I think one step removed would do a lot more in creating equal opportunities for females than legislating directly um, that they have to be put on boards. That makes sense. And do you think there is some sort of a group think around the way companies are you know, looking at this problem? Or do you think they're all being quite you know, experimental and innovative in their approach? Well, I think it's a very much a, a company by company thing. I have the, the great benefit of working with a lot of CEOs in my position in my job. And I've seen it go both ways. And a lot of times it's literally, this group think is literally having a female like me come in and say, hey, do you recognize X, Y, Z? And it's just that they're completely unaware of some of the obstacles or some of the perspectives that females have. And when they begin to see these scenarios, they're actually more than willing to put in that effort to make real changes. To me, it's all about making it personal, right? If, if I talk to a male CEO and say, hey, Consider what this would look like to your daughter. Oh, <laughs> consider if your daughter had to undergo X, Y, and Z. What would that feel like to you? And suddenly, because it becomes personal, um, it opens up sort of the door to, to start to understand or to even think about these different perspectives. And what if it was a female CEO and, and they wanted to implement this legislation and you wanted to go and convince them that that would not necessarily yield the best outcomes. You might need to think differently. I want to be careful there because I don't think that it's, 
I think that there are great outcomes to be had by having more women at the table. It's more a matter of ensuring that they're empowered at the table. I don't think it's our government's place to say they have to be there because that ends up undermining the population by saying, okay, I'm only here now because it's not because of all of the things that I've done. It's not because of my merit. It's only because of my gender. And when, you know, if you were to put me at a board table like that, I would feel pretty concerned about, you know, my inferiority or my incompetence because did I earn it? Or, you know, am I solely there on the basis of my gender? And you have to really carefully mitigate the reactions of people of others who um, may feel a lot of anger and frustration, in particular, if they feel like they just received the board and somebody else was simply handed it because of their gender. That can lead to a number of, of pretty hostile consequences for the female at that table. Now, it's interesting because we see women on different sides of this same debate, right? So there are some that are extremely liberal that, you know, want to push everything to enforce equality of opportunity and perhaps even equality of outcome in many ways through legislation. And then there are people like yourselves who are talking about, you know, equality of opportunity and access as being the key and, you know, making sure that all the right context is in place for women to shine on their own merit and leave the outcome part of it to the women. Yeah, I mean, again, if you're forcing the hands of boards to place women at the table, the result could be a confirmation bias against these hastily placed positions, right? Because if you put a low-performing woman as a board member, simply because you know you needed a woman to fill that seat, now this is reinforcing the bias against women at the table to begin with. So I think it's a really dangerous piece of legislation that has the a high potential to, to backfire. So it almost sounds like if if a man went in to give this perspective to these women who were pushing for this legislation, of course, there would be blowback. But how would you, let's say, talk to someone across the aisle from you on, you know, who's also a feminist, but looks at it differently? What would you say to them to convince them to come to your side? I think it's a matter of considering how it would feel if you were the benefactor of this law, right? If you as a female, as a, as a female pushing this legislation were appointed to a board seat reserved for this woman and you knew you were there because you were a woman, how does that feel? What, how does that benefit our gender? How does that embrace equality? How does that further our voices and empower us? I think it pushes us backwards, And I'd love to hear the other side of that. Um, I haven't heard a very strong argument for how this is going to be useful. I think it is a useful exercise to go through and say, wait, why don't we have women on this board? You know, how are we seeking out qualified candidates? Are we appealing more towards male candidates from the get-go? You know, are we writing job descriptions that fit or are posting only to places that males look? I mean, there are a lot of useful exercises to go through in order to say, well, let's make sure that we are granting equal opportunity to gain this this position to both genders. But I think the idea, again, of legislating, of enforcing it is where the problem arises. Right. And it was something interesting you said in the beginning of the conversation where you said women and men are fundamentally different um, in many ways. But that can seem controversial 
um, you know, if you tweeted that out, I think, you know, it would be a tough day on Twitter. For you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, potentially, right? I, I stand by that statement 100%. And it's funny because we we obviously are physically different. You know, you can look at the physical sex characteristics that are obviously different. And so why would we assume that we have the exact same brain chemistry? Well, we know we don't. We have different levels of hormones. So even if you go to the hormonal level, the chromosomal level, the physical level, why would we think that we're the same? <laughs> I think it's a it's a really false assumption. Are we capable of achieving the same things by and large? Absolutely. And do I think that you know, women engineers belong at Google? Absolutely. Do I think that there's a reason they get more males applying? Probably. And I think that that is probably a, a gender thing. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question to... But that's very controversial. So I'm just curious uh, because you're obviously not just an activist. <laughs> you've got, you know, um, you've studied the science behind it too, um, it seems like. So tell us a little bit about, you're a feminist, but, you know, your your background and your education informs that feminism rather than, you know, Absolutely. you just, uh, you know, believing in a, in a sort of ideology. So talk to us a little bit about what your background is and what your experiences are that have formed yeah. this opinion. Sure, sure. So um, I have a, a PhD in stress physiology. Um, my major course of study has been evolution and human behavior. So I am particularly interested, and some of the stuff that I lecture on now is is this exact difference between male and female brains. And I want to be careful here because when I speak, I'm speaking on averages, right? So the average female brain X, the average male Y, right? But it doesn't mean that the, you know, exceptional female brain on either end of that normal curve can't do the same things that the male brains do or vice versa. But, you know, we talk a lot about recruitment practices for, you know, I'm going to pick on Google because they had that big scandal a little ways back on the anti-diversity memo put out by um, one of their engineers. We talk a lot about Google because, you know, they, they're working really hard to recruit female engineers. And I want to ask the question, why aren't we working equally hard to recruit male kindergarten teachers? You know, there's a huge gap there as well, but it's not something we talk about. And if we're going to be feminists in providing equal opportunities to the genders, then we have to look at areas that, that males aren't being recruited to, that are, that are big gaps there as well. And I think the, the background that informs that, right, is, is this evolution human behavior um, approach. Well, what are females naturally great at? Well, we tend to be empathizers. We tend to be organizers of community. We tend to be really good at networking and bringing people together. It's one of the reasons that often females are brought into a failing company to really bring people back together again. Males tend to be more systemizers. They're more analytical, more um, geared toward engineering. Now, this comes from a very male-based brain. You know, I, <laughs> I'm a scientist. I would say I probably favor more of a male brain. Um, but it, these differences are fairly obvious as you're looking across trends of culturally reinforced uh, brain patterns. Interesting and, and quite fascinating. I also want to touch on something that I just thought of, and this is, we're talking about both seats in this conversation and particularly around the legislation around enforcing a certain number of both seats specifically for women. So how do you think that impacts an organization's 
sort of middle and let's say individual contributor women in the organization. Is there any incentive for them to step up? Do they feel empowered? <laughs> I mean, I, I would like to say yes. I'm not sure that that ripple is felt. And certainly looking at the only data that I have is, is from Norway, which implemented legislation that was similar to this about 10 years ago. And they didn't see any kind of trickle-down effect. They didn't see any women in that sort of middle management area that are moving up. I mean, of the 60 largest companies in Norway right now, none of them are run by females. So I don't see that that voice or having a female on a board is affecting the company overall or the composition of the company overall. But I don't know, you know, I'm not in there. I, I don't know their culture specifically. Um, so it's hard to say from a distance, but just looking at the, the cold, hard statistics, as it were, um, I'm not seeing that. Okay, um, let's then move to some something about you, um, because you seem to have, you know, uh, be dabbling in a lot of different and interesting areas and at the intersection <laughs> of, you know, science and, and culture at the moment, and maybe even, you know, uh, business practices. Yeah. So, so talk to me a little bit about your typical day. What does a typical day for Dr. Rebecca Heiss look like? Oh my goodness, there is no typical day. Um, <laughs> I, I will say that the only thing typical about my day is probably the way I start every day. I'm a strong believer in meditation and intention setting. So I start my day every morning with a minimum 10 minutes of, of meditation and just sort of a clear list in my head of the goals that I want to accomplish that day. So that and a strong cup of coffee and I'm on my way. It might be a, a podcast. It might be a talk. Um, I do a lot of work in organizations doing keynote addresses. Uh, it might be that I'm sitting down one-on-one -on -one with a teenager of a CEO um, or with a CEO themselves and, and working through some issues that they're having. So I, every day is different, but um, it always starts out with a, with a big cup of coffee and a, and a smile on my face. Well, that's a great way to start. Um... <laughs> And, and is there any typical ritual that you end your day with? Yeah, a cup of tea and my dog. Um, <laughs> I am a, a big fan of sleep. I think sleep is highly underrated. So I am in bed early. Uh, I do a, a gratitude journal at the end of my day as well. To me, it's uh, you know 30 seconds, three things that I found specifically that were positive about my day that day. It just helps me to sort of go to bed with a, a calm space and, and setting my brain to see the positive in the world. You know, so many of us have a negative bias for all the bad stuff that happens to us every day. And if we can remind ourselves at the end of every day, you know, hey, some, some decent things happened. I feel like it makes us not only see the positive more, but we end up being happier beings ourselves. So yeah, I snuggle down with my dog. I do my gratitude journal and uh, head off to sleep as early as possible. <laughs> It's interesting, you know, you talk about meditation and, and just being mindful. Uh, very few um, diversity and inclusion practitioners uh, actually recommend mindfulness training to their employees as a way to counter unconscious bias. Yeah, which surprises me because it's such a powerful tool. Um, my guess, if I, if I had to take a wild guess as to why this was said, oh, it's because they're, they're like me. In that <laughs> the first time somebody told me to meditate, I was like, Psh, I don't do that hippie woo woo stuff, you know, and, and it immediately, my own biases came in about, yeah, that's out there. That's woo woo, whatever. And the more I explore the scientific literature 
on the power of meditation and setting intentions and being mindful, the more blown away I was by how powerful this is as a, I mean, as a scientific practice. And it has been a, a cornerstone now for, for several years for me. And so the same thing, the same reaction, right? It happens to a lot of people when, you know, even the word diversity is mentioned or, you know, just thinking yes. about. And, and so how do you, you know, get someone to warm up to an idea that might seem so at first? Yeah, um, I actually, I, I play some mind games with them, actually. I talk a lot about the subconscious and the stories that we tell. And I have them say, okay, well, you're an expert. And I give them a sentence to read and just count the number of F's in the sentence, right? And they quickly read it and they're like, well, there's three. And I was like, okay, so you're an expert. You're obviously an expert in counting, right? And you can see three F's. And of course, there are seven F's in the sentence. But because the story you tell is that F says, you can see the the times when F does say, but you'll skip over all the ofs. So they, they start to recognize how... Sometimes the things that are right in front of our face and that seem so obvious because we're experts and we understand our field and we don't need any other perspectives. When I tell them, you know, four-year-olds are really good at this because they, they have a different story. They're coming with a different set of rules. It sort of opens their eyes a little bit to say, okay, somebody playing with a different set of rules may be able to see things slightly differently from us. And, you know, I end up talking a lot about privilege Um, because it's a word that nobody likes to talk about, but it's so important to recognize. I'm a cyclist, so I do a couple big rides every year. And I'll tell you, there was a a ride I did a few years back. I cycled out 50 miles and I was feeling great. I'm at the 50-mile turnaround point and I was kind of going, I don't know why anybody trains for this. You know, this is a joke. And then I turned around and I threw up three times on the way back because I just hadn't felt the tailwind at my back for 50 miles. And I think when, you know, talking about diversity, when talking about privilege, using examples like this where people can relate when it's personal, you know, when they say, oh, yeah, I know what a tailwind feels like. And I know when you turn into it, when you have to face it, when you have to recognize maybe there's other perspectives it starts to just open their worldview a little bit. (laughs) When, if that doesn't work, I always fall back on science and I start showing them report after report after report that will demonstrate how important being uncomfortable, getting around people that stretch you, being around people that have different stories, different perspectives, different questions to ask will ultimately not only grow you personally, but grow your bottom line. If you could tell me what would be, let's say, you know, three things that, keep you driven and, and motivated on a day-to-day basis that, you know, gets you doing, gets you up in the morning to do what you do every day. What would you <laughs> say those are? What are those things? Let's see. Um, the biggest things would be my, my drive and my curiosity. I am infinitely curious. And that paired with the ability to, um, <laughs> or the luck, I should say, the luck of having a family around me that is incredibly supportive, both genetic family and uh, community. Uh, early on, I had parents that sort of took me to the library and exposed me to dangerous ideas and engaged me in conversations. And that, that continues to this day. So I would give my family a lot of credit, my community. I have a community that cares and believes in me and that I can see areas that need changing in. And that that's what drives me. You know, I can see that there's differences to be made 
I get feedback from people when for better or worse, right? Like that what I've said has helped them or what I've said, man, I really need to think about this. I need to change this or, Hey, we've got a lot more work to do in this area. Um, it's exciting to know that at the end of the day, you lay your head down on your pillow and hopefully you've made the world a slightly better place that day. I mean, that's going to keep me up and going every single, every single time. Yeah. Well, that definitely keeps uh, most of us going, um, you know, in the, the hope that we'll make some sort of dent um, right. for the better. Right. Another question uh, to kind of wrap this up, you know, let's imagine 10 years from now, we look back and say, okay, you know, what do you think would need to be some defining moments that would have got us to a place in 10 years where we're not having the same conversation about diversity that we are today? What are some things that would need to happen? Um, I think we all need to start telling different stories it's really easy to get suckered into sort of our subconscious, locking into the subconscious stories that are told for us, but ever pausing and saying, is this the story that I want to tell? Is this the story that I want my daughters to hear? Is this the story that I want my sons to hear? Um, And recognizing and owning our own responsibility for being the change and creating the changes that we need to see. So often (laughs) I get criticized for working with white males white, powerful males, because there are, there's a a faction of of individuals that sees that as the enemy. And I think we've got to change this us, them thinking. If we want to see a major change in 10 years, it's got to be, Hey, look, we're all in this together and we need everybody's voice. That's going to be the biggest thing. Being able to have conversations, getting out of that black and white us versus them, uh, talking across the aisle, as you were referring to earlier, Um, And diving into that messy gray where most of life is lived. And yet um, we are so scared to go to because it's a lot easier and simpler to stay in that black and white category. But uh, I hope that we can start challenging one another to have the difficult conversations, to recognize how our behaviors on a day-to-day basis, the things we say, the small choices that we make have major ripple effects and start changing some of those stories. That's a great way to um, end this conversation. Thank you so much uh, for this conversation, Rebecca. Kadar, it's been absolutely a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. This podcast is brought to you by Gap Jumpers on a mission to eradicate workplace bias by 2025. If you fear that unconscious bias is harming your organization, Gap Jumpers can help you design a program to eradicate it. To learn more, visit gapjumpers.me. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, do share this podcast. Thank you once again for listening to the Slightly Evil podcast.